I'm really, really naive at this point as to how the world even works. I'm 22 years old and I remember walking into that first bank with my business plan and I'm in a suit and I'm feeling really good about my presentation and how I'm going to you know, get them to finance this deal. And I remember walking out of there 15 minutes later thinking, I got to get my resume together. And as I look back on it, I know what they heard. And they heard, I'm 22 years old. I have zero experience in this weather-dependent risky business. And, oh, I don't have any money at all. And I'd like to buy this ski area that has been losing money for the past five seasons. So that's what they heard, but I thought I was telling them a lot of different things. And I was out of there so fast, um, but I didn't give up. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, staying in the Midwest today for our second consecutive episode with a truly remarkable story out of Wisconsin, one of our proudest ski states. First, of course, I'm going to remind you that you're going to get a lot more out of this podcast experience if you go to stormskiing.com and sign up for the free Storm Skiing newsletter. There is an article there that accompanies this and every other podcast I publish, and that lays out all kinds of additional context and includes historic trail maps, pictures, and all kinds of other goodies. And the storm is much more than the podcast. It's season pass release season, and nothing amps up the storm like multi-mountain passes. I am locked in with the folks running the epic Icon Mountain Collective, Indie, and Power Passes, and I am going to be the first to break them down in detail the moment they're released. That's because I'm able to, in most cases, get those details ahead of time and have that ready for you the moment the past details drop. I'm letting you in. All you have to do is sign up. And yes, it is absolutely free at stormskiing.com. Also, remember to follow along with the storm on Instagram or Twitter at Stormski Journal. All right, let's get right into it here with my partners. First up, Spot. Let's face it. If you're a skier, the risk of injury is unavoidable. Meaning, if we send it too hard, we're just one crash away from crushing medical expenses. Not to mention, less time spent on the slopes. That's why Spot partners with ski resorts like Telluride, Taos, and more to offer injury insurance with lift tickets and season passes. Spot easily integrates with any booking platform and does all the heavy lifting to ensure guests are covered on the mountain. If your guests get hurt, Spot can pay up to $25,000 of their out-of-pocket medical bills per incident with zero deductible. With Spot, skiers can focus on a full and quick recovery so they can get back in their skis and on the mountain as soon as possible. Visit stormskiing.getspot.com to partner with Spot and provide your skiers with an amazing experience while showing them that their health and safety are top priorities. A win-win for your resort and your guests. Skiers, make sure your mountain has spot so you can shred with peace of mind this season. Learn more at stormskiing.getspot.com. That's stormskiing.getspot.com. And of course, I am still proud to partner with Mountain Gazette. Issue 196 arrived on my doorstep recently, and it is just incredible. Photo galleries exploring the Washington Cascades, powder skiing, and my hometown, New York City. Essays on snowboarding a Zen, Alaskan expeditions, and Mammoth Mountain founder Dave McCoy. 
There's even a little crash course on the amazing and mysterious Coyote, and of course, a moving look at skiing in Afghanistan before the country fell to the Taliban. But hey, don't just listen to me. Listen to my man at Isaac underscore Gardner on Twitter. Here's what he said upon receiving his issue. Quote, I had heard the hype from at Storm Ski Journal, but this is more beautiful and even more appealing than I had imagined. Thanks at Skiing Rogi. Thanks so very much. I need this this season and for many more. And quote, don't miss the next one. Subscribe now. Enter code GOHIRE-10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. Over at mountaingazette.com on the newly remodeled website. This code is only valid for listeners of the storm. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 75, Rick Schmitz, co-owner of Little Switzerland, Nordic Mountain, and the Rock Snowpark, Wisconsin. Anyone who listens to the storm knows I love small ski areas. Yes, I also love huge ski areas. Who doesn't? But these little joints where most of us learn have a special character about them, a sense of being part of a community and not above it. Storm listeners also know that I love Midwest skiing and I have a huge respect for Wisconsin skiing. This is the state that is tied with Colorado for third most ski areas in the country with 31. That's sitting, by the way, behind New York and Michigan. This is a state with long, cold winters and hardy citizens. This is a state that loves skiing as much as any. Before I get into that, a little PSA for you non-Midwesterners, because I realized after this interview that we did not explain this in the podcast. The UP that Rick and I refer to stands for Upper Peninsula, as in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, as in the skiing mecca of the Midwest. Listen up and you'll get there. This is a long one, so I'll get right into it. But I'll tell you right now, it's worth it. Rick's story is, in my opinion, one of the most compelling in all of U.S. skiing. I think you're really going to like this one. Let's go. My guest today is the co-owner of Little Switzerland, Rock Snow Park, and Nordic Mountain in Wisconsin. Little Switzerland has 18 trails and 8 lifts on a 200-foot vertical drop. Nordic Mountain has seven lifts and 18 trails on a 265-foot vertical drop. And Rock Snow Park has six lifts and eight trails on a 225-foot vertical drop. Rick Schmitz is my guest. Rick, so good to have you on the program today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So let's start here, Rick. How's your season going so far, both from a business point of view and for you personally? Uh, the season's been going absolutely fantastic. Um, we're really, really um, excited that we're retaining so many of the new guests we got last year um, that came out uh, with COVID. I mean, we, we had no idea that it was going to be such a bump for us last year and that, you know, with everything else being canceled, all the kids' activities, that, you know, skiing and snowboarding, you know, especially being our urban areas, became everyone's activity. And we had so many first-timers and never-evers and, and lap skiers come out. And so our goal set out that we set out for this year was let's retain them. Let's get them to come back this year. And our staff has been doing an awesome job doing that. And is there anything 
special that you did? Did, did you do outreach? Did you did you try to do some kind of specials money wise? What did you do to try to retain those folks and keep that momentum going? Yeah, so for us to to retain them, it's you know through a lot of our marketing and through through the data that we have, and and you know last year we pushed. Most of our past that we didn't require it, but most of our most of our ticket sales and everything went online. And so we were able to gather all that data and we have their usage and how many times they came. And so with that, using our CRM, we can we can really dial in and say, okay, here's all the new people that came last year that haven't been back. And so we've been emailing them offers and saying, Hey, come back out. Let's let's get back on the snow. And that's been working well. Um, and so we're really trying to retain them by by you know, touching the people that we can see, hey, you came last year, you haven't been back, let's get back out, especially now this time of year with, you know, a month and a half left in our season. And how much time do you spend, Rick, out in the snow, just talking to people, asking how their day is, asking what keeps them coming? How, how, how in tune do you like to stay with the people who are on your hill every day? I try to as, as much as possible. Um, but you know, it doesn't always work as well as you want. I try to ski every day. Um, you know, some days it, it just doesn't happen and I get too bogged down in the office, but even if it's, even if it's just a half hour or, you know, an hour, I try to get out there. And a lot of times I will go out and, and just by myself and I'll try to just ride the chairlift up with people and, you know, our chairlifts aren't very long. So I get a, a pretty short conversation <laughs> with them, but get to learn, you know, how it's going, what their thoughts are, why they came, where they came from. Um, and just that anecdotal thing, as well as, you know, being a good mental break for me to, to be out on the snow um, is awesome. So yeah, I try to be out there and be involved as much as possible. So how do you, how do you work this? Where's your home base? Cause you have three ski areas. They're not that far apart. Nordic seems like it's a little farther North, but do you have a home base or do you try to skip around and spend even time at all three? I, I definitely skip around. Um, I probably spend the majority of my time at little Switzerland. Um, I live halfway in between little Switzerland and Nordic mountain, um, and moved there when those were the two that I had. And then, so I can get to each of those in an hour. And then since I have, uh, since we acquired the rock, uh, four years ago, then we, uh, that one's a little bit farther. That one's about an hour and a half away from me, but I, I visit each ski area, um, at least once a week. I spend probably, like I said, the most of the time at little Switzerland, but, um, yeah, I'm bouncing around a lot. I put a lot of miles on in the winter. I can imagine. So help us understand this because one thing I've come to appreciate from doing this podcast is particularly for these smaller ski areas that don't necessarily have the longest season, you're going seven days a week for several months. So what does your winter look like? Do you get any days off or are you just full bore from November through March? We get uh, we get to take days off in March and uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty intense season. And you know, like, what we like to say is, you know, it's it's 100 days of, of, of go really hard. And, you know, we, we try our best to get days off in, in here and there. And we try to, you know, to make sure that our staff does as well. Um, and sometimes maybe we don't set the best example by taking days off and, and they follow us in that. But, um, you know, so it, it's a it's a hard, long push. And, you know, with night skiing and, and nights and weekends all the time, um, it takes a really understanding family to do it for sure. And thankfully, I have one of those. So. It definitely takes a certain kind of individual to run a ski resort and especially to do it long term and to do it at a high level. So I have to imagine that you wouldn't be able to do that without some passion for it. So talk about skiing and and growing up skiing and, and what that meant to you and your family. Absolutely. So for for me, um, you know, I started skiing when I was four um, at Little Switzerland, actually. So my mm. I have four older brothers. And, um, 
they got into skiing in high school because friends brought them out. And so, you know, like most everyone gets introduced to the sport by someone else. And yeah. so they, um, they started skiing and my parents who were in their forties, um, you know, my, my three oldest brothers are, are, you know, between 12 and 14 years older than me. Um, and so my parents decided they were going to start skiing in their forties. So they picked it up, um, <laughs> wow. and just learned to ski. Um, cool. No lessons, um, which, you know, we strongly recommend lessons, but, you know, so many people <laughs> don't take them. But so they they kind of just learned to ski on their own. And so my dad at that time, who had just learned to ski himself and, you know, as he mm -hmm. said, even could barely get down the hill by himself, took me out to little Switzerland and um, and put a belt. He took his belt and put it around my waist <laughs> and held the back strap of the belt. And um, he said he went down a couple times with me and that was it. Then I was gone. <laughs> Um, and that's, that's how I learned to ski. So, you know, Amazing. I was very fortunate. My brothers didn't get into skiing until they were in high school. Um, but mm -hmm. because my parents entered skiing when they were in their forties, you know, they took me and my other brother, um, who's closer in age to me, um, on all kinds of ski trips. And we got to go to Colorado a couple of times. Um, and we went to the UP a lot. We would go up to Powderhorn all the time. We always, we all played team sports growing up and we played basketball. And so that's, that's tough to ski a lot when you're in a sport like that. Um, but March was our time. And I remember mm -hmm. how much I would look forward to March every year. My parents eventually ended up buying a small little ski chalet up at Big Powderhorn. And mm. in March, we would go up, you know, sometimes three, three weekends in March. And they'd pull us out of school on Friday and we would go up there and ski. And those are some of my best memories growing up and doing that as a family. Um, and just how important that was made, made skiing just a huge part of my life. Even if I, I you know, I, I never had a season pass and didn't get to go all the time. Like some of my friends did because I was playing basketball, but as soon as March hit basketball ended and that was our time to ski and it was awesome. God, that, that anecdote that you just told is so interesting about how your parents just decided in their forties, Hey, we're going to be skiers. And I feel like that's what skiing used to be it was it was right there it was accessible you're in the midwest the winters are long and you're like hey let's go try it and i feel like over time it's become something else and, and it's become something that people tend to view as being out of reach and i don't know what kind of means your family grew up with but it, it, it's more and more as these headlines come around of 200 dollars lift tickets and and all the fancy gear and all this stuff i, I feel like that's maybe a less common story. So as you think about that in your, in your personal history and the way that your family just took to it, how important is it for you to run ski areas where that sort of story can still happen and people can just decide, Hey, I want to go try skiing and not have to mortgage my house to do it. Yeah. A thousand percent, you know, that hits so close to home. So, I mean, we were, we were a middle-class family. I mean, my my uh, my mom was a stay at home mom. My dad worked for for Xerox Corporation for I think forty years. Um, you know his whole career, and you know we they raised us five boys on you know one income, and they did it very frugally. Um, you know, so it was my older brothers. You know, at that time, my parents have said you know we didn't have money to take them skiing. Like we were really just getting by. By the time you know my younger brother and I. Um, came around. They they had enough to be able to take us, which we were very fortunate for that. But I never forget that in everything that we do. And as our business gets considerably more expensive to run every single year, and between you know just the the cost of everything going up from all of our suppliers to our labor to everything, um, we have to make sure that we stay profitable. 
But at the same point, I never want to make it where there's not an opportunity for affordable skiing. I mean, I never had eaten food at a ski area. Um, mm -hmm. And I started skiing when I was four. I had never had <laughs> area food until I was in high school. The first time I went skiing without my parents and uh, <laughs> wow. was able to go with some high school friends. And I remember I had some money and I got the food from the cafeteria and it was amazing. And <laughs> just because I was able to do it because we ground right. every single time we looked for every single deal and coupon and discount for skiing that was out there. Um, you know, we would go and on the trips we would take to Colorado, we would drive out in spring and, um, we would look for who had the best deal. I think copper mountain had a kid ski free at that time. So we always went mm -hmm. to copper, um, because it was the most affordable, um, for our family. So, I mean, that was a huge part of it without that, we wouldn't have been able to do that. And so we have this balance that we always try to strike between, we need to make sure that we can maximize the revenue that we make in a very short season. And because demand has been so high, especially the last two years, our, our prices and our window prices have gone up significantly. Um, and part of that is we're, we're starting to butt up against some capacity, some capacity issues, especially at our peak times. So our thought is we're going to control that with our pricing. And if you're going to come Saturday afternoon and that's when you want to ski, you are going to have to pay considerably more for it. And it's an, it's an expensive ticket. Um, but at the same point we have, you know, you can come on a weeknight for, for $24 um, on any weeknight and there's options out there. And we do different specials throughout the year. We have a learn to turn package for $49, the slip rental lesson on weeknights. I always want to make sure there is an opportunity for people to be able to get out there to learn it. And it's not always going to be at the most peak time and the most convenient time, but it's going to be there. And there's always going to be an affordable option. And even as, you know, our food service is getting overrun and we can't, you know, have it have carry-ins in the building anymore. Um, we've made sure we have yurts and other spaces where, yes, you're allowed to carry in food here. There's still an option for that. We're not going to say that's completely gone um, because that's how we grew up. And it's, it's what's important to make sure that it is accessible for everyone. That's good stuff. So, so, you know, you're, you're pointing to a lot of, of different pressures that you're facing as a business and, and it's a tough business and, and most areas got a slow start, at least, uh, in the East this year because of the weather wasn't being cooperative. So, so let's go back to the beginning here, Rick. So uh, obviously you love skiing. You grew up with it. It's a big part of your life. What was your first job in skiing and where? My first job in skiing was as owner of Nordic mountain. Um, that was the very first thing I did within the ski industry was I bought Nordic mountain when I was wow. going to directly out of college. I'd never worked at a resort. Wow. So, okay. So you, what made you decide that this is what you wanted to do? Yeah. So it's, uh, I, uh, was in college and I have a business degree. I have a, a, a finance degree and I had a bunch of finance internships while I was in college. I had some I worked for a mutual fund company for a couple of summers um, as an intern. I worked on the options exchange as a clerk on the on the live trading floor in Chicago one summer, um, which was really exciting. Um, but at the same point, I'd look around at those summers and I would talk to all the people and the, the mentors I had through the internships. And, and um, one thing that became blaringly obvious to me as I did all that is they all hated their jobs. Mm. They, they all were in it for one reason and one reason only, and that was to make a lot of money. And, um, but they were like, you know, I remember one, one guy being like, oh man, I'm so envious of you. You get to go back to college. College was the best. He goes, the real world sucks. <laughs> and I was like, it's like, man, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life is, is, you know, 
work in Microsoft Excel and, and sit in a cubicle or, you know, and try and climb, climb a ladder and work my way up. I'm like, I was just not excited about any of it. And I was interviewing my senior year for all kinds of different jobs um, and uh, all, all different types of finance jobs. And I was not passionate about one of them. And I knew that mm -hmm. as I was going into these interviews and I was, you know, trying to find something. And I remember sitting in a business law class and uh, my brother, who's four years older than me, emailed me a link for a website and he said, check this out. And it was called bizbysell.com and uh, it's an online classified of businesses for sale. And so I clicked on it while I'm in the class and uh, mm -hmm. and I and it said, you know, where do you want to go? And so I, or where do you want to buy a business? So I would I went to school in St. Louis and I'm like, I want to buy one back in Wisconsin. I want to move home where I grew up. And then it said, what type of business? And so I, I put in there recreation. And the first thing on that list was Nordic Mountain. And I saw that and that changed my life. And I was like, wow. this is what I want to do. We had a break in that business law class. And I went out and I, I uh, was, was calling a buddy and being like, hey, you know, how much would a payment be? And, and figuring out like, what would, what would the payment be? And what would the cost be on this <laughs> to, to buy this business? It wasn't terribly out of reach. And, mm -hmm. uh, and from that point forward, I still kept interviewing and I started writing a business plan and I was in a bunch of entrepreneurship classes. And so it was, it was good timing from that standpoint. And, um, people thought I was crazy and people thought there's no way, like you're never going to be able to buy a ski resort. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I didn't care. I thought this is what I want to do. And I went there, I'd never skied at Nordic and I came home mm -hmm. for winter break and I went and skied there and I said, this ski area is not that great right now, but it could be. <laughs> okay. And that was the basis of my business plan. And that was just purely from a skier standpoint, you know, and it's just, mm -hmm. that was my experience is this is what I want to see as a skier. This is what it could be. You know, just like every skier does everywhere they go. Like, man, I wish it was like this and I wish they'd do that. And, you know, the right. many times I hear in a day now, you know what you should do. Um, <laughs> like it, uh, you know, it, it, it was just really, um, like, I think this could work. And so I, I just used the basis of, you know, having some business sense from the classes I was taking and what I learned there. And then just what I wanted to do as a skier um, at that ski area and how I wanted to improve it and, and the opportunities that I saw. You know, it had been a ski area for 30 years. They'd never really done any marketing, um, mm. but it had been a successful ski area for 30 years. And so I'm like, man, I'm, I'm taking a bunch of marketing classes. I'm like, we, there's a huge opportunity here. People need to know about it. It was, it was, you know, an hour and 45 minutes from where I grew up and I didn't know about Nordic mountain. Um, mm -hmm. so there was, you know, so I wrote that business plan and I just, um, kept going, uh, throughout and kept negotiating with the sellers on price that whole second semester of my senior year. And we go back and forth and it, you know, there would be some walkaway points where this isn't going to work. And there was a business broker involved in the deal and he would say, all right, Hey, let's throw this number at him. Let's, let's give it a shot. And, um, and we did, and, and I graduated from college, and a week later had an accepted offer to purchase the business. Um, Unbelievable. And at that point, I'm like, I own a ski area. This is awesome. But <laughs> I had one big thing in there that was a financing contingency. And I'm really, really naive at this point as to how the world even works. I'm 22 years old. You know, my, my priorities used to be on where we were going to go out Thursday night. And, right. and it's... Uh, you know, and, and so I'm like, well, we'll figure out the financing. And so I, that first week out, we met, I, uh, I took a meeting with every bank that would take a meeting and, um, 
and to talk to their business lender. And I remember walking into that first bank with my business plan and I'm in a suit and I'm feeling really good about my presentation and how I'm going to you know, get them to finance this deal. And I remember walking out of there 15 minutes later thinking, I got to get my resume together. Because <laughs> I thought I had this really polished presentation. And as I look back on it, I know what they heard. Um, mm -hmm. And they heard, I'm 22 years old. Mm -hmm. I have zero experience in this weather dependent risky business. And mm -hmm. um, oh, I don't have any money at all. And I'd like <laughs> to buy this ski area that has been losing money for the past five seasons. Um, <laughs> So that's what they heard, but I thought I was telling them a lot of different things and I was out of there so fast, um, but I didn't give up. And I met with a bunch of other banks in the next couple of days and I found a couple that would listen. And mm -hmm. it was a process and it wasn't easy. It wasn't a huge sum of money at the time. Um, it was all the money in the world to me. It was, um, you know, I think it was $650,000 to buy the mm -hmm. entire business at that point. And it took, I think, four different types of financing and loans. Um, my parents did loan me um, the $100,000 down as the down payment to the bank. That was a loan, so it was 100% finance to the bank. We didn't tell them it was a loan because they didn't like that. They're like, no, that's right. that's gifted money. Um, <laughs> and so, and, and, and essentially my parents said, you know, this is, you know, this is our, your inheritance that we're giving to you early. Um, mm -hmm. they were, for, I was, I was fortunate. My brothers wouldn't have had that same opportunity. Like I said, my parents were very, you know, middle, middle class and, and didn't have that money at that time. But at this point in their life, they're like, here it is. We can give you this. We believe in, we believe in what you're doing and we believe that this can work. And they were some of the biggest supporters because I had so many people that weren't and so many people that were like, mm -hmm. man, you have this, you know, this good degree, go get that job in finance, make the money. And, um, so it took a long time. It took until November 14th from that May date um, wow. to get the financing secured. And on November 14th, we closed on the deal. Again, you know, probably came close to falling apart about five different times. Um, and through multiple different types of financing, we were able to get it done. It, that's so incredible on so many levels, Rick. I, I think two things stand out to me. Number one, what gave you the confidence as a 22-year-old that you could successfully take a business that you knew nothing about and and not only run it but improve it and and what and the, the second level is how what was the story that you came up with to get the bankers to believe in you because it's great your parents believed in you but you you needed institutional buy-in so what made you believe in yourself and what made others besides your parents the banks finally believe in you yeah so for me, it was, you know, the, the basis of the business plan was this place needs some marketing, it needs some passion, um, mm -hmm. and it needs, you know, some upgrades. And, and so that was kind of the cornerstone of the business plan. And, and I had some really good projections on, hey, you know, if we like, here's a business that is a very customer facing business that even some of the bankers had never heard of. And I'm like, it's right here. This is skiing. There's, you know, it, it's in a market, there's a really nice market of the Fox Valley that it's definitely the closest ski area to that population base. And mm -hmm. it really just needs that um, to get the word out on what it is. And it needs some upgrades and some improvements. And the banks were willing to do it. Um, you know, they, they weren't willing to take on all the risks themselves. They were only willing to do it as an SBA loan with the government backing it. And so mm. that creates a whole nother layer of hoops and everything else we had to jump to jump through to be able to get that. But um, that was that was the key. There wasn't a bank that was willing to say, we'll just do this as a commercial loan at that time. 
Um, you know, we needed some guarantees and that's why it was so hard to get to that financing. And I found, I found money from, um, the state had a tourism loan. That was a low interest loan that they'd give to tourism businesses. I found that I found a a revolving loan fund, um, in the local community. I was able to get that. Um, and, uh, so it was every little bit helped and, and put a little less risk to the bank to where I finally got them to say, okay, we will do this. Um. So yeah, so that was that was that. As far as my confidence, I just really believe that this is what I wanted to do and that this could be awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I never wavered on that. And I was like I said, there was a ton of people that were were against me. One of them is, and I'll I'll get to this maybe a little later. One of them is my current business brother or business partner and my uh, second oldest brother, Mike. Um, <laughs> he was one of the biggest ones that said, look, like go take a good finance job and, you know, you want to own your own business, do it later. One of the mm-hmm. interesting things, you know, that was very influential to me was in one of those entrepreneurship classes, there was a guest speaker we had, and I don't even remember what businesses this guy had started, um, successful entrepreneur. And he came and was talking to our class and he said, who here wants to own their own business? Obviously everyone raises their hand, they're business students in entrepreneurship. And he said, what's your plan? Let me guess. He goes, you're going to go get a job. You're going to make a bunch of money. And uh, then you're going to you know, save some of that money. And you know, five, 10 years from now, you're going to use all that money you made in your nice paying job. And you're going to you know, start a business, right? And you're going to figure out mm-hmm. what that business is. And you're going you're gonna to have your own company. That's what everyone wants to do in business school. He goes, here's the problem. He goes, you're going to go. You're going to get used to a certain lifestyle. You're going to get used to mm-hmm. making that money. You're going to spend that money. You're, you're going to get married and, and have a family. And all of a sudden there's people dependent on you. And all of a sudden you can't take that big risk. He goes, right now you have the best opportunity to do it. And if you do it right now, um, what's your worst case scenario? He goes, A, when you start your own business, you have to be willing to live on nothing. And believe me, I lived on nothing for a very long time when I started my business. Um, he's like, but you're used to doing that. You're a college student. You're used to living on ramen noodles and living very inexpensively. And that's, you know, so that's not a change in your lifestyle. You're comfortable doing that. You're, you're, you don't have a family. You don't have people that are dependent on you. And he goes in the very worst case scenario, something that happens is if you fail in your first business and many people will, you start over, you might have to file bankruptcy. You might have bad credit for a while, but you start over. And now is the time in your life when you have the best opportunity to do that. And so I looked at it and I always think of anytime I, you know, have a sense of quiet area, I always think of the absolute worst case scenario and have to look at that. And, you know, at that time when you're 22, that worst case scenario, it's not that bad. It's really not, <laughs> you know? Um, so that's, you know, so that was part of that confidence was I'm like, okay, even if I completely fail at this, I have something to fall back on and I will land on my feet and I will gain an incredible amount of experience in the process. But I really believe that this business would work and it, it took a long time and it took, you know, some, some struggling, but it did. So that was what Rick, that was 2005, right? Yep. That was 2005. Okay. So looking back 17 years later, obviously worst case scenario did not happen. You built a very successful business, but let's go back to November 14th, 2005. You take ownership of the ski area. It's snowmaking time. What did you do? Did, did you did you go up to the mountain? It, it, was there a crew there that knew what they were doing? How did you even approach this? Yeah. So in that whole process, when I'm negotiating and trying to get the financing, I had moved up there and uh, and I had started working at the ski resort um, mm. and just helping you know the maintenance guys that were getting stuff ready. The owner that was I was buying the business from, he was still getting it ready. He had been mm-hmm. through a couple of accepted offers, I believe. 
that did fall apart. Um, so he was getting ready to run the ski area. So that was to my benefit. So he, he, he knew that there was a chance this deal would fall apart and he wanted to keep the ski area operating. Hmm. So he, he was still, you know, doing what he needed now, albeit the bare minimum to run the ski area that year. Cause he didn't want to invest a lot, but he was still getting stuff ready. So that whole time I was working up there and I was getting to know the management team at that time. So I would, I would spend so much time working alongside these people and just talking to them and to each of the mm-hmm. individual department managers about, you know, what their challenges were and just learning from them. And I, I approached it with the mindset. I, I would tell each of them, look, I don't know how to run a ski area. I did not want to come in. Like I'm going to change the world and this is what it's going to be. And it's going to be my way. I told them, I don't know how to run a ski area, but you mm-hmm. guys do. I'm going to observe you guys doing that this year. And then we're mm-hmm. going to make some changes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I empowered them, which was really good. I think they, you know, for many of them had a lot of ideas and, you know, the, the guy that I bought the ski area from kind of ran things like, this is why we do it. We do it the exact same way every year. And a lot of them wanted to make changes and maybe always didn't have that opportunity to make changes within their business, within the, within the business. And so, you know, they would come to me with an idea and be like, Hey, we always wanted to knock this wall up in rental and it opened this all up and we do that. And I'd be mm-hmm. like, yeah, it makes sense to me. Let's do it. <laughs> um, so it, it took until November 14th and then we closed and then all of a sudden walls were coming down and people were remodeling <laughs> and, and these managers were, they, they were really excited and empowered to be able to do some of this stuff. The snowmaking side of things, I knew nothing about snowmaking. Mm-hmm. I knew that the pre, the guy I was buying the ski area from told me that the snowmaking system's great. Mm-hmm. Um, the snowmaking system was not great. It was absolutely <laughs> terrible. And, you know, it was a very uh, outdated, um, you know, rough system that barely made enough snow to get open. Um, mm-hmm. You know, their goal was always to get open by Christmas. Um, and, and to just get open by Christmas was always a struggle. And it, uh, so I just learned like there was snowmaking people that came in and there was, you know, one of them, one of the snowmakers that came in and made that snow the first year um, is now my general manager at Nordic and my business partner. Oh, wow. And, um, I've, I've since given them ownership, um, of Nordic and, uh, but I, I learned a lot from them and this is how we're making snow and, and what the challenges were. And so I very quickly started having meetings with snowmaking companies and really quickly, it wasn't even in my business plan to invest in snow. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, wow. And I realized quickly that it was priority number one, because okay. we, we would get a slight warm up in that first year. And we would be closed because we were put, wow. we were paper thin and we had just enough snow to be open. And, um, you know, we had to redo everything from building a snowmaking pond. We didn't have a water source first and, and everyone, mm. all snowmaking companies come in and they want to sell you a gun. We were running right. water that was so low pressure that none of the modern guns would work with it. And so mm. we had to fix the water problem first. So we had to redo most of the pipeline on the hill. We didn't have enough water source. So we had to build a pond. Um, and we, so we had to do all that stuff. We had to upgrade a ton of electrical all of that before we could even start buying guns. Um, it took a number of wow. years before we started buying guns that could work um, and, and obviously upgrading the pump house. So it was, it became a priority later, but yeah. So back to the original question that first year we, you know, the strategy was empower the management team that's there. And, um, and that worked really well. We still made changes. You know, I, I went away from using a cigar box and actually put a point of sale system in because I thought, <laughs> Maybe that was uh, why the numbers looked like they did, that maybe there was some shrinkage there. Um, so, with, you know, I, I did add some technology upgrades right away. But, um, you know, beyond that, there was not a lot of major changes. But then after that, there was. We added tubing after that first year. 
Um, and the, and the model was take, you know, 110% of whatever was made and reinvest that back in the business. You know, every year it would be, we'd spend every single penny of profit and pour it back in. Um, I would pay myself, like I said, the bare minimum. I looked at my draws that first year, that first calendar year, I made $13,500 personally as my, um, I live very inexpensively uh, <laughs> where Nordic is, is not an expensive place to live. Um, and I spent all of my time at the ski area and ate my meals there. And so that was it, um, you know, but it was, and it, it was like that forever is just pour all the money back in. And, and every year there was a little bit more money to pour back in. And so the investment just, you know, exponentially increased every year and still does to this day to where we continually reinvest back into the Hills. Um, and we're getting good return on that. So lay this out for us, Rick. I mean, you did a pretty good job of painting the picture of what Nordic looked like when you showed up from a snow baking point of view, but taking a more expansive view, the parking, the lodges, the lifts, the grooming, what did Nordic mountain look like when you showed up and what does it look like today? So it, uh, you know, it, every aspect of that was tired, you know, from, you know, needing, you know, tons of renovations and just improvements to the lodge that was getting to be in pretty rough shape. And it is a very old, unique log building, um, that was, you know, needed a ton of repair and we did a ton of that repair in house. Um, and so the lodge was in tough shape. The, the, the groomer was, which I thought was a really cool machine because I didn't even mm -hmm. know what groomers were or what they looked like. Yeah. You know, I would see them when I was out skiing and that was it. No, I didn't know the difference in groomers. The groomer I had was a 1982 DMC DeLorean Motor <laughs> Company, um, wow. L, uh, which was the predecessor to LMC. It was a DMC straight bar tiller. Um, that, you know, again, the, the previous owner told me this machine is awesome. It's so good. And I quickly realized that, um, you know, on, on my insurance renewal, that it shouldn't have been insured for $60,000, like they had it, but more like $5,000, what it was actually. Worth. Um, and that was it. That was the only groomer we had. Like we did, that was the only thing. And, um, it was, uh, and the snowmaking was about 10 SMI 320 guns, which are an open blade, incredibly dangerous, um, you know, ice maker that only mm. really make good snow when it gets really cold. Um, and, and now today, you know, that snowmaking system from the infrastructure all the way up is, you know, more than 30 um, Techno Alpin fully automated fan guns. Um, we, we believe strongly in automation. We, uh, we have uh, a brand new Bison X groomer and then a, a used Bison X groomer as our grooming fleet um, that, that, you know, has really transformed how we make snow. We now regularly are open um, at least by Thanksgiving, if not earlier. And uh, we don't close for minor weather within the season. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the parking lot was, it was big enough. It was fine. Um, we had to, you know, spend a couple hundred thousand dollars just putting more gravel in it though. I mean, I hmm. just did that a couple of years ago, just so cars weren't getting stuck anymore. Um, <laughs> and, and we put recycled asphalt in it and, and, you know, so we've, we've continually reinvested. And so it, it is a completely different place as well as just the cosmetic stuff. And, you know, we've rebuilt every single lift shack on the entire hill. We've, we've, hmm. you know, painted the lifts twice in that time and, and brightened them up. Um, you know, so we, we continually, we, we rethought trails and how the hill flows. And we've, you know, I've removed some surface lifts and put in, um, you know, more modern surface lifts that work a lot better. We've added conveyor lifts. Um, like I mentioned, we added the tubing operation. So we've just continually every year, we're always thinking, how can we make it better? How can we improve it? And, um, and we, and we, we're not going to stop doing that. Um, it, it's how we operate all of our areas.
So little by little, you brought it together. I'd imagine you learned very quickly. There's some kind of curve there. And and eventually you bought Little Switzerland. And I want to get into Little Switzerland. But first, I want to talk about how you branched out to get experience in the broader ski industry. So so talk about going up to the UP, when you did that and why. So it was, you know, so Nordic every year, you know, I was profitable out of that first year, um, just barely profitable. And every year that profitability went up, we were growing the business, you know, 20% at least each year. Um, and that was starting to compound and the business was growing, you know, pretty rapidly. And so my fourth year, um, I just was sitting in the office one day in the summer and uh, the phone rang and it was um, a guy who goes, Hey, I'm a real estate investor from Oshkosh and I want to buy blackjack and I want you to run it. Mm-hmm. And I was just, okay. I was just floored. I'm now 26 <laughs> at this point. And I'm like, what is, uh, I, I didn't think it was real. And I'm like, right. <laughs> let's meet, let's talk about this. And so, you know, a day later we're driving up there together, um, to blackjack mm-hmm. and, um, to go look at the property. And I'd run Nordic for four years this time. We still had so much to do at Nordic. Like it was, it was a process to improve that place, to get it to where it is today. Um, but I was excited. I knew that Nordic was going in the right direction. And I thought I had this formula of, it just takes a little bit of extra marketing and some reinvestment. And, you know, I can make any ski area work. And that was my Mm -hmm. cocky attitude of, (laughs) we can make anything go here. And so we went up, we toured Blackjack that, and Blackjack had just shut down. It had shut down for one year um, mm-hmm. in 2008. And we we toured it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is a phenomenal ski hill. Like I grew up skiing at Powderhorn just down the road. I don't think we ever, I think I skied Indian Head once. I don't think I'd ever skied at Blackjack. Um, and I'm like, this is a phenomenal ski hill, amazing terrain. And it was of the, the three ski areas that are right up in the UP there, it's the youngest mm-hmm. one. It was started in 77. The other ones were started much older. And so in 77, everything was built brand new there. And they they bought everything from brand new. The lifts and everything, albeit you know from the 70s and, and early 80s, were all in really good shape, incredibly well-maintained. The base lodge was massive. I was so envious mm-hmm. of the size of it compared to what I had at Nordic. <laughs> and you know a, it was built, a big block building that was built super solid, um, really nice base lodge. Um, and all the infrastructure was miles ahead of where I was trying to get to at Nordic. And I'm like, okay, that I'm spending all my money on infrastructure up here. We need to get marketing. We need to, you know, invest, find a way to get people to build more lodging up here and get it going. And so we structured that deal where we co-own the real estate together. Um, we bought the property and mm-hmm. then I owned hundred percent of the operating entity. So at that mm-hmm. point, you know, after four years at Nordic, I, talked to my now general manager who was a snowmaking, the snowmaking manager at the time. I talked to him in August and I said, Hey, um, I need you to run Nordic this year. I'm going to go to the UP. And <laughs> he was, he was pretty surprised. And, uh, I was like, I don't know if I could do that. And, um, he's obviously done an amazing job of it. And, uh, so he took over Nordic. I went to the UP and, and my, uh, wife, my fiance at the time came up there with me and helped me get it going. And um, we reopened it and we used a lot of what we learned at Nordic and it was good, um, albeit very, very challenging. Um, We learned a lot about the challenges of the UP and that it's really hard to get people to drive. The market for the UP is Minneapolis, it's Milwaukee, it's the Fox Valley, which is Nordic's market and it's Chicago, Madison. It's, It's a big wide market. So for me, my marketing at Nordic was I just need to spend money in the Fox Valley and those skiers come. 
Like these are all very expensive markets in a massive radius. And I, you know, it's very tough to market those ski areas um, because of that. It's not like we're just marketing to one. And, and so that was a huge challenge. And there's also so many options, you know, so many of the people in Minneapolis were going up to Lutzen, which, you know, mm-hmm. continually reinvested in, and have really, really nice ski areas. And so many people were stopping at Granite Peak on their way up there um, as they were mm-hmm. continually pouring investment into that place and putting in high speed lifts and making it really nice. Meanwhile, the UP, they had these glory days in the 70s and 80s where they have so much natural snow that people went up there for the snow. They get lake effect off of Lake Superior and, and average over 200 inches, which is incredible for the Midwest. And so they, they had these glory days in the 70s and 80s, and, and a lot of them didn't continually reinvest in their areas. Like as I visited, you know, the Crystals and the Shanties in, in lower Michigan, those areas you could see in the Boines continually reinvested and put, it, put in new lifts and high-speed lifts, whereas the UP was operating on all old riblets and the lodging. A lot of it still looked like the 70s and 80s. Um, so the areas were a little tired, and I think the customers realized that. I think, you know, core skiers love going up there because it is amazing terrain and natural snowfall. Um, but now they were a lot of them were stopping. And so it was a huge challenge to get through, um, to, get, to get people to s- drive past Granite Peak to get up there and to ski. And it also was a huge challenge to get people to drive five hours from Milwaukee or seven hours from Chicago instead of hopping on a Southwest flight and being in Summit <laughs> County in a matter of hours. Right. Um, you know, so that was, that was the big challenges that I found up there. And we still grew that business. And then the first year we opened and we lost money. And that's just my first experience losing money in a, in a in mm. the business. And, and luckily Nordic was doing well enough that Nordic was now supporting blackjack. And in the second year we grew 20%. We lost less money and Nordic had to support a little less. In the third year, we grew another 20%. We're doing really well. And in that fourth year um, was the year we reopened Little Switzerland. And so at that point, after three years, a couple of my brothers, one of them being Mike, who was the biggest uh, you know, naysayer of me doing this all together, they saw <laughs> how much fun I was having. And yeah. they were like, we want to get into this. Like, you're, It looks like you're having way more fun at work. One of them was a... Uh, a project superintendent, uh, electrician. He's, you know, in the trades and uh, manages, manage big electrical projects. And the other one, my brother, Mike, uh, that was my brother, Dave. My brother, Mike was uh, a home builder. And this is 2009, uh, um, 10, 11, 12, when, you know, the housing crisis happened. And so home building was not a great business to be in at that time. And so they were looking for changes and they said, and so that's how we looked at little Switzerland together, the area we grew up at that had been closed for five years. And we looked at that opportunity. And so while I'm running Nordic and Blackjack, um, we started rebuilding little Switzerland in 2012. And we rebuilt that area. Um, a lot of it ourselves, a lot of sweat equity went into that. You know, our dad always taught us to be very hands-on and we don't hire someone to do something we can do ourselves. And, and so we were doing that and we were, you know, we had, we started to get a couple maintenance guys and employees to help us. But my brother being the electrician was able to rewire the entire hill. My brother, Mike being the home builder was able to, you know, work on a lot of the renovation of the main lodge, everything else, um, as well as all the lift shacks, everything on the building. And so it was a really good team and they were relying on me to bring the ski expertise as to how to do this. Um, and so it was an incredibly large effort to do that. 
because of that, I think I took my foot off the gas a little bit at Blackjack. And then in that year, um, in 2012, the year we, that was my first year of three ski areas, I left the management team at Blackjack, much like I did at Nordic. And I left the management team there and I would only go up to Blackjack once a week. And otherwise I spent most of my time at Little Switzerland, um, getting that place off the ground. And what happened after that first year is um, Little Switzerland exploded out of the gate. And, wow. um, and like far exceeded expectations and Blackjack went flat. I didn't have growth mm. from the previous year. And it was also the year my daughter was born. And, mm. yeah. and so I'm running three ski areas, driving all the time, um, working all the time. And I have a new daughter and my wife would, uh, would call me on the phone uh, crying sometimes saying, I feel like a single mother. And it was, I mean, she was working so hard to just, you know, it was all new to us and I wasn't there. And I realized I needed to make a life change at that point. The three was too much. I've overextended myself. And so I looked at it and I have Nordic that's been doing really well. I have Switz, which is exploding out of the gate and, and going to be a very good operation. And so at that point I made the decision to exit blackjack. And because of how I had set that up. And like I said, anytime I go into the deal, into any deal, I look at what's the worst case scenario that can happen here is, mm -hmm. you know, I, because of, I had a real estate partnership up there, I was able to essentially give back my half of that real estate purchase um, and say, here's, here's my half of that company and I'm dissolving my operating company. And I was able to walk away um, without having to sell the business. Um, and uh, you know, it was a tough decision. It was really, really hard. I loved being at Blackjack, I love the terrain up there. I love the people and the communities um, and just how awesome the ski community is up there. It was a really hard thing. Like that was, you know, the, the passionate skier in me was like, man, I'm leaving this amazing place up here. Um, but it was the right decision ultimately for the businesses and, and for my family. That ski area at some point after you sold your share combined with Indian Head and then recently resold, when those ski areas went on the market in the last year, were you tempted to get back into them? I won't say that I didn't look. Um, <laughs> I, won't, I won't say that I didn't, uh, you know, um, you know, kick the tires again on it. But, uh, you know, so that was my former partner that after I left, um, he acquired Indian Head. And, um, you know, and then operated them as two, which always made sense because of the economies of scale. I mean, those ski areas are literally next to each other. They could be connected with the lift. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, so it, it really, it made sense on a lot of levels. Um, but it's still, you know, like I said, th there was a lot of things that that area didn't reinvest in. So to me, one of the biggest challenges up there is it's going to take some very heavy investment from someone to make those areas go. And it's it's kind of, a blind, very risky investment, um, you know, to be like, you know, Hey, if I put in two high speed lifts here and it's, you know, I, I don't even know how many millions they are now. It's probably $8 million to put in two high speed lifts. Right. Um, is that, am I going to get a return on that? That's a lot of skiers and that's a lot of lift tickets. And that's a lot of blind faith that that can work um, as well as the lodging and, and everything else. Um, you know, so for me, it was the amount of deferred maintenance that I saw, um, and, and deferred upgrades that I saw in that area made it probably the most challenging. I definitely won't say that it can't work up there because like I said, I mean, there is nowhere else in, on, on our side of the lake 
um, you know, the, the lower Michigan side, they get lake effect snow and some of the areas get more, but on our, I mean, at our three ski areas, we average 50 inches of snow a year. And so to be up there and to average well over 200 is yeah. something special. All right. Well, it, it, maybe maybe in some uh, in some future state, Rick, they'll come back to you. So uh, let's talk about Little Switzerland here. So in 2007, Little Switzerland shut down. I'd imagine you're going full bore at Nordic right then. Uh, but this is your childhood ski area. What was your reaction like when you heard that news? And how did the opportunity come around to purchase it? I was uh, I was shocked, honestly. Like, you know, I'm brand new to the industry. I'm just learning how it goes. And I'm, I'm watching, you know, from afar, how Sunburst in Little Switzerland, Sunburst is 20 minutes from Little Switzerland, another Milwaukee metro ski area. And I'm watching those areas just being what I thought was incredibly successful. And then to get the news, you know, two years after I'm running Nordic, that Little Switz is closing, I was, I was absolutely shocked. And so the first thing I did was pick up the phone and uh, try and get in touch with the owner and say, what are you selling? Um, and, and so I, I did, I went down and I bought the entire snowmaking fleet from little Switzerland, which mm. was old, like Nordics. It was also very okay. outdated. And I think, you know, what I learned later was little Switzerland's problem was very similar to a lot of skiers that did not reinvest. And so mm-hmm. I was buying 30 year old SMI three twenties, but just a lot more of them to make snow, Nordic snowmaking fleet, at least bigger to make more snow. So I, I bought all those. And, and I mean, those were relatively inexpensive. Um, we bought a ton of the infrastructure off the hill. And, uh, you know, I, at first I, I met with um, with Jay, the guy that was closing it. He was the grandson of the founder of Little Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, yeah, we just can't make it go. And I, you know, they didn't have any debt on the property. And he still said he needed to borrow money from his mom to operate the ski area every year, which was to me just kind of puzzling because um, I had a bunch of debt and we were still making money in a much smaller market farther away at Nordic. Um, but he wanted at that point, that was when real estate was booming. And he thought the property that the, the scary sat on was worth $5 million as just real estate. And so that's okay. what he had in his head. So, I mean, cause the first thing I asked him is, Hey, is, what's the price? And he said, you know, the real estate's worth at least $5 million to be subdivided or, you know, to put houses on. And, uh, I was like, okay, we're, uh, what are you selling then? You know, because it, it was never going to be a scary at that. And so when he thought it was worth that much, I, you know, I remember removing infrastructure from that business. I remember being out there and, you know, taking snowmaking pedestals and whatever it was. And he was there with us, um, overseeing us remove the infrastructure from the property. And he was like, yeah, take it off however you want. He goes, you know, you don't have to disconnect it. If you want to just, you know, cut it off at ground level and, and take a whole pedestal, that's fine. Um, because we're going to, you know, develop this. And so I remember removing stuff from that ski area saying to myself and, and the team that was helping me, this is never going to be a ski area again. Like it, it's it, it's, it's done. And so we removed all that stuff and then the housing crisis happened and all of a sudden this, you know, so everything else was sold at auction and the place was gutted and it sat, you know, with gates across the driveway for five years, right off the highway in a, in a beautiful community of Slinger, just sat there as an eyesore for five years. And the housing crisis happened. And so all of a sudden, what he thought he could get for this, that went away. And that was just completely gone. Um, and it was not worth any much as real estate at all. And at that point, uh, there was a guy that bought the entire property um, for a million dollars um, okay. as wow. it sat. 
and and he wanted to open the ski area, but he didn't have any experience. So we got in touch with him. We found that out. We reached out. We got in touch with him and said, hey, we heard you're looking to reopen Little Switzerland. Let's talk. And we, that was a deal where we didn't think it could work right away at the lodge. The lodge was in such rough shape. I mean, there was paintball wars that had happened in there um, <laughs> okay. since it had been shut down. Like Everything was broken out of it. It was it was it was in dilapidated shape and we thought right. it was this building needs to be raised and uh, a new lodge constructed and we didn't know if that penciled out and that was a huge part of it but the one very key part of the entire thing is as i mentioned how much lifts cost to start a skier from scratch the lifts were still there they they had they had gutted one of them they removed a quad from the beginner area um but the other two riblet chairs were still there and still completely intact and I knew enough and had gained enough experience at that time to know that old chairlifts can be rebuilt and can be done at a fraction of the cost of a new one. And so we looked at that and evaluated, you know, if we pour a couple hundred thousand dollars into each of these chairlifts, we can have that. That's the most expensive piece to the entire operation. The snowmaking we can rebuild um, from the ground up. I'd gained a lot of experience and knew a lot more at this time of what that all entailed in this business plan. And so because the lifts, they were the key piece that they were there, um, as well as then the guy that owned the, the whole thing that we were looking at buying the ski area from, um, he had an architect look at the building and the architect actually went through and looked at the bones and said, and came up with a really beautiful rendering and said, this is what this can be. And this is the price tag on it. And all of a sudden that made a lot more sense than building a new lodge as well. And it looked beautiful. Um, so we saw that. And um, so then we, you know, through lots of negotiation, ended up deciding to go ahead with that project. And we, you know, found some banks that now were much more willing to lend to me um, because right. I had a, a track record and I had a business plan that, you know, was a lot more in depth than mine one had been in 2005. And um, we found a local bank that financed the deal and, uh, and we were able to get it done. And so that first year we bought the ski area from him, all the land that the ski hill sits on. And the other guy that owned the racetrack across the street owned the main lodge. We leased out the lower half from him and ran rentals, ticketing, retail, and cafe. And then he ran the bar restaurant upstairs. He always wanted to have a bar restaurant. Um, and after that first year, we realized very quickly that we were going to have to overpay and buy the main lodge from him. And we did. So it was okay. a challenge having a different operator up there and to the customer okay. to go up there and come down and say, I need to complain about my dinner I had up there. And we'd say, well, that's not us. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the customer didn't care that it wasn't us. And so we realized quickly we needed to have control of that. So we had to negotiate with him where he had all the power. And we ended up you know, purchasing that lodge after, and, and the parking lots and everything else after that first year. So this is a whole different challenge from Nordic, I have to imagine, Rick, because even though Nordic, as you said, had a lot of problems. It was a functioning ski area. You had people in place. You get to Little Switzerland. It's been closed for five years. I mean, it was probably enough just to get the slopes cleared and mowed, let alone all the other stuff you had to do. And I'm curious in particular, from a staffing point of view, you're having to start from scratch here. And I think in some ways that's probably good because you don't have to deal with maybe some institutional dysfunction that I think kind of grows in in most businesses over time, if you don't watch it and you don't have good processes, but 
you know, on the other hand, you are starting from scratch. You don't have institutional knowledge. So how did you approach that? Did you bring people down from Nordic? What was your approach to, to bringing Little Switzerland online in a way that would be successful and minimize these growing pains of essentially starting a new ski area? Yeah. So, you know, there, I think there's two parts to that. So one part is the actual infrastructure rebuild. Um, and so that, like I said, we were very hands-on. We were out there doing the work. Um, my other two brothers more so than I was, cause I would still go and visit Nordic and Blackjack that summer, but they were there all the time. And I was there as much as I possibly could be, but doing all that work physically. Um, and, and then for that, we would bring down, um, I brought down my lift mechanic from Blackjack and from Nordic to help us, you know, bring that lift knowledge to it. Cause we didn't have a lift mechanic at Little Switzerland yet. Um, we found a guy that was mechanically inclined and then we had our other lift mechanics start to train him. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, so that was the infrastructure rebuild, which was incredibly challenging. And the timeline we had from that summer and the amount of stuff we did, and we, you know, looking back, we, we should have brought in, you know, much more people, but we were doing it on a shoestring budget. You know, we, we were able to get financing from the bank, but it was just enough to execute the business plan. And, you know, we had to do everything. And, and like I said, it's also the way we were raised. You know, my parents were very frugal and we have to do, don't hire someone to do something you can do yourself. And that's the mentality that we had. And so we were doing all of that. And we're also trying to build a team around it. And one of the amazing things that Little Switzerland had um, that we, that I way under, you know, I, I, I way undervalued in the business plan was the goodwill in that name. Um, and part of it was at the end, Little Switzerland, I think part of why it ended up closing is that name had kind of lost some of its value and, and Little Switzerland was getting pretty tired and not well-maintained. And so at the end, I think there was maybe not the best reputation associated with it, but I think a lot of people forgot about that in the five years it was closed. And it, it all of a sudden was people, you know, had these memories of growing up skiing there like I did, and they, they missed the nostalgia of the place and, and what it meant to them. And when we announced that we were reopening Little Switzerland, the community support we got and the amount of people that were so excited about it um, was mind blowing. And, and I think because of that, we were able to, and it was also a very different labor market than we live in today. Um, when we did start the hiring process that fall to find department managers, to find, you know, every last person, um, you know, it was like the floodgates opened. Everyone wanted to come back and work at Little Switzerland. And so we used the knowledge that we had from Nordic Mountain to build that team and to find the management team and, and build that around it. I mean, the ski patrol was still there. Um, wow. Amazingly, they were they were laying in the weeds. You know, wow. <laughs> for, for lack of a better term, they had they'd gone and patrolled at other areas, but they stayed organized and they kept even all their their status up. And they were so excited to come back. And oh, cool. it was you know so it was really amazing when we reopened it. The the community support and as well as the customer support. And so we were able to make all these improvements. And I think that five years did a, a lot of favors that. People forgot and all of a sudden they came out and they had a great experience and we had really good snow and we had really good grooming and we had, you know, a beautiful, completely renovated, you know, lodge that, you know, had $2 million just put into it. And, and so all of a sudden this experience that they had coming back after five years, they forgot all about that experience they had six years ago when they came mm -hmm. and, and a lot of stuff was broken, um, you know, and so building that team was, was tough um, for sure. It, it still was a challenge. Um, but we were able to find amazing people. And, you know, and the other thing is every step of the way I, I brought up my parents multiple times, um, they were right there with us. They were out there, you know, rebuilding it. My mom was painting, my dad 
um, would he, he would help lay block or do whatever it was. Um, they, they, they were out there every step of the way in that first year, our mom ran, uh, and for a number of years ran the ticketing and, and pro shop. And my dad would help in rentals and, uh, very much a family operation. Unbelievable. I, I mean, the, the community support, the family support, it sounds like you had all the, the keys in place. You just needed to make it happen. What was that like for you, Rick, personally, to resurrect your childhood ski area and bring that back for the community? It was, um, you know, I, I was so focused on how hard we were working that entire summer um, and, and all the stuff and all the challenges we had. And we had you know, we were load testing on, you know, I think we opened on December 10th, a little later than we have ever, every year since, but it's because we were still doing projects. I mean, right. we were moving chairs on the chairlift and we were load testing it and we were having drive issues and we were failing our load test and we're making snow at this point, the hill's starting to get covered and we can't get our, our lifts to pass the load test. And we couldn't figure out why. And it ended up being a drive issue. And it's a really long story, but we would, we would load it up and think we'd figured out the problem and then we would fail the load test and we'd have to start all over again. And we were removing chairs. We're doing this. We're working around the clock at this point, um, getting ready. Every department's getting ready. And we didn't know if we were going to open the ski area. I remember at one point, my dad pulled me aside and said, Rick, you're making a lot of snow and you don't have a chairlift that works. Are you sure you want to make all that snow? <laughs> I, said, I said, Dan, we're going to get it. I go, we're going to get it. And when we do, we're going to be happy. All that snow's there. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, and my dad stays pretty uninvolved in the business. And that was just his observation from afar. <laughs> and, and, but we did. And we finally passed that load test. And I remember we opened. And because of that, you know, nor, now we'll open with, you know, two or three runs and, and very little. People are so excited early season. We'll open. I mean, we opened 50% of the terrain because of that delay and we kept making snow. And so I still remember sitting there, my wife had come down and I'm holding my daughter and I looked out the window and we had a terrain park built on our opening day and just watching it be packed. And I remember just being blown away at how many people came out. I'd never gotten that many people to an opening day at Nordic that had been operating for 35 straight years. And wow. how many people there? And I remember holding my daughter, looking out that window and that sense of pride, like that's the moment it really hit me. We're like, wow, we did this and this is going to be great. Like it was, it was incredible. And I'll never forget that feeling. That's awesome. And, and it, clearly you've kept that momentum and that place is very successful. I, I do want to go back to what you said about the lifts, because these are very interesting lifts. They're up and over riblet lifts. They're very unique. They're built in 1964. They've been sitting idle for five years. So just talk about those lifts for a moment. And I think they're really cool. They're, they're really cool looking. Uh, but just the challenges of maintaining those old lifts. I know that you said you're a, a big believer in being able to rebuild lifts, but what did you have to do to get those things running again? And what do you have to do to keep them in good shape and keep them safe? Yeah. So we had to do a lot. And, and, you know, thankfully, like I said, we were able to bring lift mechanics from the other Hills that knew what they were doing because I'm certainly not a lift mechanic. Um, but so we, we assessed them when we went through and we even had, you know, an outside guy come and, and assess it and look at them and say, yep, these are savable. Here's, here's the process you need to do. And so we needed to essentially take them completely apart. And, you know, we thought, I thought for sure we we're going to have to replace the wire ropes on them. And we had, came out and I had a line item in our budget for that. And they came out, inspected them, said your wire ropes are good. That was, I think, the only item that we didn't go over on. Um, okay. And, 
And, you know, but beyond that, you know, so we have good wire ropes, the, the machine rooms, they're vault drive. So the machine rooms are down, uh, in a basement and one of them was completely flooded. And so like, I mean, literally four feet of water in there as we took over the ski area. So we have to figure out how to get that. So it's not flooded all the time. And we have to remove all the machinery out of that. And we did, and we removed all the machinery out of both of them, um, had gearboxes rebuilt and or inspected. Um, bought brand new motors, drives, everything, completely rewired the lifts top to bottom, um, brought them all up to current code, um, new, uh, so new and VFDs, control boxes, everything. Redid all that and did it all in house. Um, and, uh, and then all the line work, all of the shivs and all the shiv assemblies had to be completely taken down and completely gone through, um, rebushed multiple inspections. It was, it was a long process. Um, but again, still, we ended up spending, like I said, a few hundred grand um, versus the cost of new would be astronomical. And, and we continue to maintain them at a very high level. Um, and they're, you know, a really safe, good, reliable lift. Um, mm-hmm. Now, that said, it's still an old lift. And I think the one from 1964 and I believe 71, um, they are, you know, they're not going to last forever. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I do think about replacing them at some point. They are extremely unique. Um, there's a few other ones around that I've seen, but not many where one lift serves as two. So you ride it up from yep. both directions. It's over the top. And, uh, so the top of the lift, which is actually the midpoint of the lift is the unload from two directions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I often, as, as I think about that, and I know that, you know, I want to start to plan for, if we do end up replacing one, what that looks like, um, it, it's, it's not something that's going to happen. I would say in the next five years. But beyond that, it could be in the, you know, five to 10 or even more year plan where probably a replacement is, is a possibility. Um, but as I've just started to think about that process, I'm very curious what the lift engineers are going to have to say. We don't have a lot of real estate on the top of the ski area um, for that double. And, you know, if you were to take the one lift and replace it with two, you now have, you need a lot more real estate to unload two lifts on the top than have Right. One of those that services too. So I'm very curious what lift engineers and designers are going to say when, when I do bring them out there, which I haven't done yet as to the best way to get that many people up. And we need every bit of uphill capacity we have there. I, I would imagine, and I, I love these classic lifts. I love riding them. I love looking at them. I like everything about them. I have to imagine that one disadvantage you have here, Rick, is when when one lift goes down, it's essentially like two lifts going down. So do you have a pretty good reliability rate on those or, or have you got backed into a corner sometimes because that one lift is down? And so essentially you're down two lifts. We do have, I mean, we, we definitely, the reliability has been, you know, knock on wood, very good. And it's because we try to maintain them um, very meticulously. Um, But we do have issues. I mean, you know, very timely just yesterday, um, we had a bearing go out on a shiv and we had to replace it. Um, And this was at open. And uh, on a Sunday, of course, Yep, on Sunday. <laughs> and so we were out there and, it, you know, it took an hour and the lift opened an hour late. Um, luckily, it was, you know, it wasn't super busy out of the gate and everyone just pushed over to the other two. The good thing is at least they run redundant in that both lifts run the same direction and go to the back and the front. And, and so if one's down, we're still skiing 100 percent of the terrain. It's just the lines are going to be longer. So it is. It, it can be an issue. Um, knock on wood, they've been down very minimal uh, in the 10 years we've been running them. Um, and and we, we try to stay really out in front of the maintenance and do as much preventative maintenance as we can 
to make sure that they are very reliable. But yeah, it's it's definitely a concern. Um, but they've been good. All right, let's uh, let's shift and talk about the Rock Snowpark here. This is a, a really small ski area and one that you acquired uh, more recently. So so talk about the Rock and how the opportunity to manage that ski area came up and why that appealed to you. Yeah, so from you know what I learned from you know Blackjack to Nordic to Switz was that you know the model is people, right, and population mm-hmm. and you know location, 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 and I learned that. You know, while Blackjack was by far the best ski area from, you know, terrain, snow, everything, um, it was the toughest to run as a business. And it was, you know, more expensive because it was bigger to run as a business. And so there's there's a lot of challenges to that. And so when we reopened Switz, I'm like, well, Switz is considerably smaller than Nordic, but its location is so much better. And Switz quickly passed Nordic in in, in all measures um, and, uh, and volume has become our flagship. And so I, I looked at that and I'm like, clearly, you know, the population base is the model. And so Switz sits about 35 minutes northwest of Milwaukee, right off the freeway um, in the suburb, in a suburb of Milwaukee, um, whereas the Rock is in Milwaukee County. Um, it is in uh, Franklin, right by the Milwaukee airport. From the top of the ski hill, you can see the skyline. Um, wow. and, and I was... I was drawn to it and I knew it was there. It had been Crystal Ridge from, you know, the eighties. I think that place opened, um, very small, only a handful of runs, but mm-hmm. I also knew from tubing at Nordic that, uh, tubing and population base made a lot of sense. Okay. Um, and the rock had a very large opportunity for a good tubing operation. Um, and so that's what attracted it to us the most. And, and so the rock also in 2012 changed ownership and there was, uh, a developer that came in there that took the property and started investing incredibly heavy in everything around it. And so he built an amazing baseball complex um, that has replica fields that are, you know, AstroTurf and or, or, uh, field turf and just amazing base and has huge tournaments. He has since built a minor league baseball stadium there and bought a minor league team and has that as a parking lot. Um, he built a giant indoor training facility and he's in the process right now of building this uh, uh, Top Golf product. It's not Top Golf, but it's a, a knockoff product, and he's building, you know, an indoor golf facility there. Um, and so he's investing all, and he did the same with the ski hill. He invested heavily in it, and we watched because it was the same year we bought Little Switzerland, and they're kind of indirectly a competitor. And so we're watching their progress. And so that first year, we saw him, you know, invest a bunch of money and put in new snow guns, and and we watched them operate. And then every year after that, we watched them shrink the operation a little bit. And they went from, you know, opening the ski hill to opening less and less to by the last year after their fifth year of operating it, they were just making enough snow by a conveyor lift for a few tubing lanes and a small terrain park off a conveyor. And I looked at it and I said, I don't think he's having any fun. Let's go talk to him. <laughs> and, and, and so we approached him. I literally, I'd never met him. And uh, I looked him up on LinkedIn and connected with him and sent him a message and said, hey, would you want to sit down and talk? And uh, he was very excited to talk. I was right. He was not having fun running the ski hill. Um, <laughs> he's really good at the baseball and the other stuff and, and all the things he was doing. But the ski hill was something that he's like, I just, you know, I'm pouring money into it and I'm not getting any out. And right. so we ended up buying all of his assets and signing a long-term lease with it. It is part of it, it not all of the hill, but part of the hill is uh, a landfill from Milwaukee County from way back 
Um, it hasn't been for 40 years. Um, but part of that is, so we didn't want to own that real estate, really. Um, Banks didn't want us to own that real estate. And so we signed a long-term lease with him to run the ski area. Um, and it's been really good. It was a process. It was a rebuild, not far unlike Little Switzerland. Um, luckily, in part of his investment, he had paid, uh, that one has an old Borvig lift, and he had paid um, someone from out east to come and completely rebuild that lift top to bottom. New drive, very okay. similar to the stuff we did at Switz. That had been done. So that was really good. Um, they had done some of the snowmaking stuff, but we had to replace the entire snowmaking pipeline and put in a new pump house. Um, so we did all that. And then we ended up um, uh, getting a lot more snow guns as well and, and actually changing brands of that and stuff. But um, but yeah, so it was but it was still an operational challenge out of the gate. That one. And, and as I talk about Little Switzerland and how that had that five year break where the reputation maybe wasn't great. Um, at the end, but that five-year break, customer kind of forgot about it, and and they were able to come back and offer them a really great product. Whereas the Rock, you know, for Crystal Ridge, never had maybe the the most glowing reputation. They were very, uh, and and then when the Rock had it, you know, the fact they kept shrinking the operation, people were kind of down on the Rock Snow Park side of things. The whole complex is called the Rock, where the Rock Snow Park. And people were, you know, it, it had some reputational challenges to get the skiing back to where it could be. So it was, you know, making snow on 100% of the terrain um, and, and getting it to where it needed to be a ski area and how we operate things at Switz. And it's taken a little more time than I anticipated to get the ski and snowboard side of things going. But with the last two years, it's really started to take off and it's growing a lot. The tubing operation has been phenomenal out of the gate and is, uh, is really, really good there. One of the first moves you made, Rick, and I thought this was really interesting, is there was an old chairlift, I believe it was a hall chairlift, and you took it out and you replaced it with a rope toe. This is a really interesting move because you usually see ski areas go in the opposite direction, but we are seeing a little bit of a resurgence in surface lifts for for, for a lot of good reasons that I think were, uh, were forgotten over time. So why did you make that move and was it the right decision? I, uh, I love rope toes. Rope toes are the best uphill transportation for the Midwest period, in my opinion, um, <laughs> on many levels. Um, so there's a couple things with that. So that, that hall chairlift, not every chairlift can be saved. That one could not be. Um, that one was beyond bringing back to life. Um, so the cost of a new lift there wasn't going to make a lot of sense. There's a lot of challenges. The bottom of it is a wetland. And um, there, so it, it wasn't going to be a chairlift and a rope toe can move way more people uphill um, than a chairlift, um, you know, even a quad, like just the amount of uphill capacity. I don't have a hard number because the spacing on a rope is, is, is very, can be very tight and moves. Right. Um, you know, and it depends on the speed you're running to somewhat, but it, uh, the uphill capacity of a rope toe is massive. Um, and so we knew with just one double chairlift there, and even though it is essentially three or four main runs that dumped down to the bottom there, we knew we needed uphill. And with terrain parks, the name of the game is a rope toe. Terrain park riders prefer a rope toe, um, especially in the Midwest where our runs are short. They don't have to unstrap um, for the borders and they can get so many laps in. You know, I've heard Nick Gepper talk and, you know, he talked, he grew up at Perfect North in the Midwest. And he's like, part of why, you know, I was able to train so much is after school, I could come and I could lap that rope toe and I could get so many more laps in than riding a chairlift. And, and obviously night skiing and how important it is in the Midwest. He goes, I could get out of school 
And I could come and train for six or seven hours every single night and get so many laps in on that rope toe and that repetition is key. And for, for Midwest terrain parks, the rope toe is so efficient to get people uphill. Riders like the option to, they might want to just lap one feature and they will just lap that feature and hop on the rope and ride up a little bit. Um, so there's, there's so many benefits to it. It, it is a little bit tougher to ride. It's not a beginner lift by any means. And back in the day, we used to have rope toes in the beginner area. Um, right. I do have a little bit to talk about that too. And, and how we upgraded our beginner areas because of that. But anyways, the rope toe is, it's inexpensive to build. Um, we build them in house, we design them in house and, oh, wow. and, and, uh, and it moves people extremely efficiently and the riders love it. We have the rope toe will go down occasionally and we'll have an issue with it. And at the rock, it's like critical. We have to put that out on social media immediately. Um, or the customers get really upset because if the rope's right. down, they're not even going to come. <laughs> like, and that's our passholders <laughs> in our core. And so we'll put it, we'll put right. it out there. We'll be the rope toes down for maintenance. We'll let you know. And then two hours later, we'll be like rope toes up. And then all of a sudden they, the parking lot comes and they, they fill out. Um, but yeah, rope toes are absolutely amazing for Midwest skiing. How long have you owned the rock? So this is our fifth season there. And how's the momentum going? I know you said it, it sort of had that. Uh, hangover of folks not necessarily associating with a great experience. How have you been able to make progress on that? Yeah, so we had to figure it out a little bit. You know, we were we were scratching our heads a little bit in the first year as to why skiing wasn't hitting the numbers we wanted. Tubing was, and tubing was, like I said, really really good out of the out of the gate. But we we had, we had to quickly learn that the rock wasn't going to be the same as Little Switzerland. Um, Little Switzerland is incredibly family oriented, and it's everyone's. You know, we sell a, a large number of family season passes and it's, you know, their hangout and where they come and, and you know, where they raise their kids for so many people yeah. in the winter. And and it is the hangout for those families, whereas the rock is not quite set up like that. The lodge is kind of in the middle. It's, you know, it's kind of a mid lodge, more or less for 265. If you can imagine, you have probably yeah. 100, 100 vertical feet above you. And then 125 vertical feet below, um, and so it uh, it wasn't as well set up like that. It's not a bunch of trees. It doesn't have that same feel. So we had to figure out what the rock's identity was, and we realized that the identity is obviously terrain park, and we can do really really good things with the terrain park there, and we have, and that's been very successful. Um, but maybe it wasn't going to be as much the family, and we certainly have families there and family pass holders and Franklin's. You know, there's a lot of population. And they come, um, but it's it's really a learn to area. Um, so we and as well as a race area. So we 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 quickly said, all right, maybe it's not going to be as much family as Little Switzerland is, but we want to be. This is where you teach your kid, and maybe you'll go as a family to Little Switzerland or up to Nordic, and and so the beginner areas. We we started investing. We added one conveyor two years ago. We added another one this year um, to replace the handle toe. Um, and our lessons have exploded there and it's, it's working and people are coming out, um, you know, and we're looking at now our rental building is not big enough and, and that's what we were going for. And that's where we needed to get, um, to get those new skiers out because that's really the most important part. If we looked at that from a purely operational business as to what the most profitable part is, it's, it's clearly tubing. And if we said, let's just maximize the amount of revenue we can make here, it might be to make even more tubing because tubing right. sold out almost every weekend. And, but that would be at the expense of skiing to where we couldn't ski anymore. And like that place could be a successful business 100% as a 100% tubing hill. But that's not what my goal is and our goal is. 
we want to create skiers and snowboarders. Like, hopefully they'll look, be tubing and look up at that hill and be like, let's take a lesson next time or let's try that out. Um, you know, and so our ultimate goal is, you know, to change people's lives with the sport of skiing or snowboarding. And, and to do that, we need to teach more people and have that beginner area and that experience. Not that skiing and snowboarding loses money, but if we just look at the profit margins of the two businesses, tubing is where it's at there, but the skiing and snowboarding is, is what our mission is. So I think it's really interesting that as distinct as these two ski areas are, Little Switzerland and The Rock, uh, the one thing they have in common is Milwaukee. And, and I don't think this is a place that people think of as a ski town, but in fact, there are at least eight ski areas in the Milwaukee orbit. So just talk about Milwaukee, Rick, as a ski market and just the passion of the skiers there. Yeah, I think Milwaukee is a great ski market. I think there's a ton of people um, that uh, that love to get out and, and enjoy winter. And I think last year, you know, we wouldn't have predicted it before it started, but COVID got so many more of them out when other activities were canceled and people wanted to do something outside. Um, and so I think it, it really helped the entire Milwaukee market essentially wake up. And like I said, we're doing what we can to retain those skiers and get them back out. But I think Milwaukee, because there's a lot of skiers that are very close, has always had a good, a good history of it. Now I look also at the flip side, you know, I think, I don't know the exact numbers, but number of skiers per capita, I think Minneapolis dwarfs us. I think it's more part of the culture there um, where there's even more skiers essentially located as well as just, the structure of it with schools up there, the schools get out of school to go take ski lessons in Minneapolis. And I think that really sets the culture um, and, and makes it so there's a lot more skiers per capita up there. But Milwaukee's definitely still a very good ski market with a lot of passionate skiers that do go all over. So Milwaukee is awesome as far as our, our customers that want to be outside and have fun in the snow. Is that something you've considered working with the local school districts on? It's like, hey, we, we, we have capacity during the day. You have kids that need to get outside. Let's make a deal. Yeah, we do. And we get some of them. Um, you know, there's there's some schools that can do it as part of, um, as, as part of, they can get out for a field trip and we get some to do that. And some come out and do a, a science of tubing field trip where they learn the physics of tubing. Um, but uh, it's really school district by school district. Whereas I think in Minneapolis, it's almost more at state policy level where it's like, you know, part of PE class is to go skiing. Um, if we could get to that, that would be pretty awesome. If we could get to that everywhere, that would be pretty awesome for our industry. So I think where you see a lot of the kids is at night, and I'd imagine the rock, especially with that with that teenage demographic of park kids, is is out there uh, in force during those times. So if you look at Milwaukee as a as a ski market, Vale obviously sees the value in this, right? Because they they bought Wilmot a few years ago. And I thought that was a really smart move. I thought, okay, here's a big company saying, we see the value of Midwest skiing and Midwest ski culture and sort of grabbing these customers and incentivizing them to buy our pass so they'll go out West. So it was a smart move. However, this year, I think Vail is really messing this up because they have so many Midwest ski areas now. They have them in Ohio, Indiana, Missouri, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota. And what they've done is with this labor shortage we're experiencing, have used that as an excuse to say, okay, we're not going to have full operations. And in the Midwest, this seems like such a catastrophic mistake to me because first of all, the season in a lot of those markets I just mentioned is very short uh, and, and it really should be full bore, right? 12 hours a day for that 12 weeks or whatever it is. As you're watching this from afar, what are your what is your reaction to seeing them 
by these little hills, which in a lot of cases are the only hills in the community, like around uh, Cleveland or uh, Paley Peaks. What is your reaction as you're watching them do this? And and I guess the the follow-up question to that is, how have you been able to fully staff and keep your operations going full bore uh, to to serve that Midwest demographic, which when they buy a season pass, frankly, expects night skiing? Right. Yeah. I I can't speak to Bail exactly as to, you know, what their operational thoughts and challenges are at their areas. I know, you know, I've I've obviously read a a lot about the challenges and the the things that they're facing, but it it is, you know, it it is very interesting to see, you know, how they've done it. You know, as as I watch from afar, and like I said, I don't have or have talked to anyone there, but it, it seems as I've seen even some different general managers roll through Wilmot, which is the closest Vail competitor to us. It's probably an hour from the rock. Um, and as, as they roll people in that maybe don't fully understand the Midwest. The Midwest is different. Um, and when we, when we have our Midwest skiers association versus when I go to the national skiers association meeting, the Midwest is a completely different animal in that, you know, it's very much everyone does everything at a Midwestern resort. And I think as I've seen Vail operate, it seems like they're trying to operate the ski areas exactly as they operate Vail Mountain, which is a very right. different operation with very different <laughs> challenges than Wilmot Mountain in, in southern Wisconsin. And so I, I think that's what I've just observed. And I don't know personally or firsthand what, what the challenges are, but I mean, it's it's not compartmentalized. We're incredibly flat organization across the board. You know, it, I spend a good amount of my day picking up garbage or, you know, if, if we have to plunge a toilet, we're going to do that. And we're, you know, we'll be spinning dins and rental at one point, And then I might be out, um, you know, helping with snowmaking at another point. And it's, I mean, that's kind of how the Midwest operates. That's how all Midwest operators operate. And and I don't know if that's kind of in the corporate structure of Vail's resorts. And so I don't know if that's the challenges that they have or, or what it is. Um, but, you know, for us, we don't we don't get a lot of direct impact from it. Wilmot is really it is in Wisconsin. It's right on the border. But their market really is Chicago, um, whereas we're more Milwaukee market. We do get some draw, especially at the Rock, because it's on the south side of Milwaukee. We do get some draw up from Chicago, especially for the tubing operation, um, but as well as skiers and snowboarders as a more affordable option where if you're just looking for that conveyor lift and that beginner experience, um, we're a much more affordable option that way. But yeah, I can't, uh, you know, I, I can't speak exactly as to the challenges they're having, but I, I do think that these ski areas are part of the community and they're a critical part of it. Like I said, you know, when, when little Switzerland sat idle for five years in Slinger, you know, that town was sad, you know, and we see it just from how supportive that town and the community has been. And just, you know, from the village government there as to what they will do, anything they can to support us to make Little Switzerland successful. Um, you know, and I think that's true of so many small ski areas in these small towns, um, especially in the Midwest. And it's, it, it, it is quite frankly, a little sad to see. And I hope that they, they will figure it out and get them, uh, you know, operating back to how they were when they were a private ski area. All right, let's peer into the future here, Rick. What's your wish list? What do you want to upgrade, improve, replace at Nordic Little Switzerland and the Rock? Um, so, as I mentioned, you know, for us, we've spent so much money on snowmaking and, and grooming and, and equipment and infrastructure, which is awesome. And it's been a huge part of our success. Um, but if you go and talk to the average skier, 
And if you ride the lift with them, you know, and I was riding a lift with the guy the other day, he goes, there's a lot of snow here. He goes, they have yeah. a really thick base. I'm like, yeah, thank you. I mean, most people, they, they care about the top two inches they're sliding on. They don't care. There's a ton of bait. Base doesn't matter as much here. We're not trying to cover stumps and rocks. And, um, you know, they're just happy there's snow. And they don't realize the importance of that base and that infrastructure. I mean, they would notice if it wasn't there. But it's not like they're like, I'm going to go there because, you know, that's that's a 48 inch base and not you know 30 inch base, you know. So um, and they they don't realize that because we have, you know, modern new groomers that that's why the surface in all weather conditions is as good as it can possibly be. But, you know, they've come to expect it, but they don't know that if we were still using a 1982 DMC straight bar tiller that it would not be a very good surface. And right. so it's an expectation that all these infrastructure, you know, it, it's created this expectation for snow surface, which is a huge focus of what we do. But what we're really trying to do now is focus on more customer facing um, improvements. And that's improvements to facilities, base lodge, everything else. That stuff we've done our best to upgrade and maintain, but we haven't invested heavily in it. So it, it comes in a, in a couple phases and it's it's buildings um, is what we're focusing on right now as the last two years we've grown a lot um, you know whereas our lodges were too small on those you know five to ten peak days a year that's starting to become a lot more consistent thing where our lodges are too small small on a regular basis so at Nordic we're in the process of designing an additional base lodge to take some stress off our main one um, nothing huge probably six thousand square feet. Um, of total space, but it'll take, you know, some of our programming in our main lodge and move it to that uh, second building. Um, and that'll make a much better customer experience. Um, so we're looking at doing that as well as Little Switz. We're looking at a very similar thing. Um, and Little Switz, actually, we have probably the bigger, more master plan. Um, we just purchased a corner lot that was right in front of us of a couple acres. And we're trying to figure out how to program that and what we're going to do. We, we need parking lot improvements and upgrades at Little Switzerland desperately. Um, and so we're trying to figure out what the entire master plan is. That's really a two to five year master plan um, before we redo the parking lot. Because we don't want to just resurface the parking lot and be like, oh, now we're going to tear up this half of it and build a building. So that that plan is, um, you know, involves moving our maintenance shops up to a different area to cut a new ski run. Um and uh and get them out of the main base area because they're kind of an eyesore nice. and not where a maintenance shop should be um so moving our maintenance shops adding another beginner conveyor at switz um in small area there moving our ski school um closer to the main lodge um and possibly a new rental building there as well as well as we're trying to figure out how to program the corner on a pretty busy street right off the freeway whether it's um, some mixed use um, apartments or um, some retail space and some other things there. So we're in the or very early planning stages of that right now, but some really exciting stuff um, as well as at the rock, you know, as I mentioned, our rental building um, A is in very rough shape and B is very undersized. So we're starting planning phases for that as well as um, finishing. Hopefully this spring, um, we're building a large challenge tower adventure course at the rock. Oh, cool. As you look across your portfolio, Rick, it's it's really interesting when you look at your lift fleet. You have some old halls up at Nordic. You have those riblets we talked about at Little Switzerland. You have that Borvig, which you mentioned had been rebuilt at The Rock. It, it's funny because none of those companies uh, are in business anymore. And and you know, as you think long term, and and I know that that you're a uh, proponent of keeping them going, but. Wouldn't it be nice if you if you had more consistency across your lift fleet just for you know parts and maintenance purposes? 
A thousand percent. Yes. Yep. <laughs> it absolutely would. It's a challenge. And, and, you know, I know we'll get there and we will be building lifts at some point, you know, for us, it's, I think the, some of the, because they're all still, you know, very safe, very efficient, well-functioning lifts that, that have been rebuilt. You know, I, I don't think it's in the, the nearer term plan, but yes, at, at some point they are certainly going to get upgraded. You know, it, it is, of, of the three brands you mentioned, Hull is still completely supported by Doppelmeyer. Um, mm-hmm. So that is, you know, by far the the easiest lift to get parts for and maintain. The other two is a bigger challenge, um, but we still can get it. There's there's aftermarket and we can still get parts and, and things to fix them, but it's definitely a challenge. And keeping old lift running is is not an easy task. And it's it's certainly not easy for the guys that work really hard on them and finding those guys is also a huge challenge. Yeah. All right. Well, you have three ski areas. Uh, is that enough? Or do you think that you would look at another opportunity if something went for sale in your in your orbit? I, uh, I'm always looking. Um, I will never rule uh, a ski area out. I think, you know, as I mentioned, one of the things I learned is from Blackjack is I can't make every ski area work. Whereas when I, when I got up there, I was like, I, it, all it takes is passion and we can make every ski area successful and let's reopen them all. Um, you know, so I, I think I learned a lot more of what I need to look for and where it's at. And I, you know, I, I do look at ski areas that do come for sale and I, I, you know, assess sometimes from afar, sometimes I'll go visit, but, um, yeah, I think, uh, I, I definitely would continue, um, if the right opportunity comes at, at the same point. Um, things are really good and we have really good teams and we still, you know, we're not done at our ski areas. It's not buy more and move on and, and take our foot off the gas at, by any means at these ski areas. And, you know, I'm still very intimately involved in, in the day-to-day operations. And, and so I, I don't want to take our foot off the gas on, on the improvements we need to continue to make at our ski areas. We want to continue to always be getting better. Um, and we, you know, we're, we're a long ways off from being where we can be. And so we're going to keep going and keep our foot down on that. So if the right opportunity doesn't ever come, that's still fine. We're still doing great and we still love it. And we're still making a, a, a ton of new skiers and snowboarders. All right, let's wrap up with passes here. Uh, probably the closest conglomerate or like mini ski conglomerate to you is, uh, as far as the business model is Wisconsin resorts, which oddly operates mostly in Michigan, but they, that they're specializing in these urban adjacent, small, you know, as many, almost as many lifts as run ski areas. Uh, they, they have three around the Detroit area. They have bittersweet there and, um, a little bit, uh, to their West. And then they have Alpine Valley, which is a competitor to you, I believe. Yep. And then search mine up in Ontario, which is, which is a little different operation, more like uh, blackjack than the other ones that we were discussing, but they actually, uh, finally combined all their ski areas onto one pass. Is this something you've done or that you've considered as putting you three ski areas in one pass? Yeah, we do. So we just do it as an upgrade. Um, so we, uh, you can buy a season pass at any of the ski areas and we do charge different amounts at each ski area. Um, you know, Switz, um, Switz is a little bit more than the rock and Nordic, um, for the season pass. And so, um, with that, we have an upgrade price to get to that. So most of the people do upgrade. Um, I would say 20% of our pass holders at Switz upgrade to what we call the Switz or the snow pass SNO. It used to be when it was just Switz and Nordic, it was the snow pass because it was the, the Switz Nordic option um, okay. where you get the option to ski at either. And then we, uh, when we added the rock, we just kept calling it the snow pass. 
um, because we didn't mm-hmm. think the snore pass was going to sell that well. Um, <laughs> You're probably right. And, uh, <laughs> and so we do get a good amount of people that do upgrade. It's not, you know, um, a ton. Now we switched to RFID ticketing last year. So now we can see their actual, oh, cool. our utilization and how they go. Cause all our passes are direct to lift, but now we can see how much they're using and how they're spreading out. Um, and the snowpass holders are using it, you know, especially between Switz and the rock, they're only 35, 40 minutes apart. Um, you know, especially those park kids, they can go down, ride a different park and, and get different feel. Um, so, so they're utilizing that, but then they also use Nordic cause it is a little bit more remote and a little bit bigger hill. Um, so they do, you know, a lot of families use it as let's go take a weekend up there. Um, so it, it is working well. Um, and, uh, it's not a lot. I think we're, I can't even remember now. I'd have to look at our pricing, but it's only like a $20 or $50 add on to add the other oh, wow. two hills. Um, you know, when we first did it, we're like, everyone's going to do it, but it's amazing. A lot of people are like, nope, I just come and I ski at Switz and that's all I'm going to do. So. so you also joined all three ski areas are now on the Indy Pass. And to me, this goes back to that initial conversation we had about making this an affordable sport for folks. So what, what appealed to you about the Indy Pass? And and I, I the Rock was a late ad. Just curious why you held that one back for a little while. Yeah. So as soon as I read about the Indy Pass, I contacted Doug Fish and uh, he said I was one of the first people to to reach out. And I said, we want in. I had I had seen a few back when the Max Pass was a thing I'd seen. They had let a few Midwest skiers in. And I'm like, well, yep. I want in on that. And this was around the time, you know, when, when the Max Pass uh, for its short existence, when yep. when Vail was buying the Midwestern resorts. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know, hey, what if we could do that and offer our pass holders access, um, you know, to these ski areas without, you know, getting bought. And, and so I, I actually contacted the max pass and that was, you know, I, I must've reached out right before they dissolved it. And they said, we're not taking anyone mm-hmm. new right now. And then the max pass didn't exist. Um, right. You know, and, and so I saw that, you know, as like, I realized that that's something I wanted to do. And then as soon as I read about the Indy pass, I said, we're in. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and I didn't know Doug at that time. I didn't know if it was going to be a success or not, but I knew that if it was a success that we wanted to be a part of it. Um, and, and sure enough, it was a huge success. You know, the first year was not, you know, amazing. We didn't see a lot of redemptions. There wasn't a lot of Midwest resorts, but, um, you know, for us, it was very little risk on something that could have a lot of reward and, and it's become a really strong pass and an amazing product. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we, we were early adopters and strong advocates of the indie. And the reason to your question as to why the rock was, that was part strategy of, uh, of Doug and, and myself both is originally he was designing it more where he only wanted one in each region and, and being that, you know, Switz and Nor and rock are basically both right outside Milwaukee. Um, we decided we'd just start with Switz and see how that goes. And then. You know, after that, you know, this past summer we were we were chatting and we're like, why don't we just put the rock on there? You know, right. so, so we added it. Um, yeah, so it was uh, it, it was just a, a little bit different strategy, I think, from Doug um, on the onset. And how did that, how is it going so far? Are you seeing more redemptions as the seasons go on? I think this is the third season now. Yeah, I haven't. You know, I haven't even looked at redemptions in a while, but I know, yeah, it, they continue to grow each year as as you know they continue to sell more. Um, it's not a huge part of, you know, of our visits. It's not a huge part of what, uh, of what's going to drive our bottom line, but it, it definitely doesn't lose us money and it gets a lot of people. I think it gives them that opportunity for 
hey, if I don't want to hop on to Epic or Icon and I still want to take that trip out west, I can do it. You know, I know some of our employees um, that have them and they they call it, they take their Indy Pass road trip and they're like, we're getting nice. in our car, we're driving west and we're going to stop at every Indy Pass along the way. We see people at our ski areas that are, hey, I have the Indy Pass. I'm, I just, you know, I live in Chicago, but I thought I'd just buzz up here. And that's what we were really thinking is we're going to sell, he's going to sell a lot of them in Chicago. And those people are buying it because they want to take a few trips out west and hit a few days there. But maybe they haven't stopped up at Little Switzerland, but now, hey, it's included. They're going to stop by. And I think that has worked. Amazing. Well, Rick, it's uh, it's really impressive what you've built out of nothing <laughs> over these past 17 years. Uh, I wish you all the luck in the world and uh, really looking forward at some point to getting out, taking a little Milwaukee or Wisconsin road trip and, and checking these ski areas out for myself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as one of my mentors who used to run Sunburst, is, his name is Jim Engel and longtime, very good ski area operator. He always said, he goes, you know what, you know, some people pick on the Midwest and say skiing in Wisconsin. He goes, but it's still skiing. It's still the exact mm -hmm. same thing. He goes, our yo-yo up and down is just a, has a lot shorter string, but it's the exact same sport. So it's still awesome. And I still love skiing at our ski areas. Oh, that, that's, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, uh, I started skiing in Michigan and, and while I moved to the East coast and I continued to be mesmerized by the fact that I can get to a thousand vertical foot ski area in, in an hour and 15 minutes, I will never stop appreciating the passion of Midwest ski culture and the skiers there and the ski area op operators. Cause I think it's, it's a really special place to ski and to explore. So, uh, it's, it's not anything I'm ever going to turn away from. Absolutely. Yep. It is awesome. All right, Rick. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And I took a lot of it, uh, right in midwinter. I, I greatly appreciate that. And I thank you very much. No, absolutely. I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it and, uh, thanks so much, Stuart. That's Rick Schmitz, co-owner of Little Switzerland, Nordic Mountain, and The Rock Snow Park, Wisconsin. I gotta tell you, Rick, that was absolutely incredible. One of my favorite conversations on this podcast to date. I think a lot of people will find that very inspiring, even if they have no intention of ever owning a Scaria. The way you willed this thing into existence and crafted a life you love is something we are all striving for. That will not be the last time we talk, Rick. Thank you so much for that. And thank you all for listening. Got some good ones on the way for you. I have booked conversations with the leaders of Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania, Beaver Mountain, Utah, Solitude, Utah, Beaver Creek, Colorado, Snow Ridge, New York, Big Sky, Montana, and Summit Esnequalmie, Washington. And I've got another big one that I am dying to announce and will the second we pin down an exact date. The best way to get in the moment updates on the Storms podcast schedule is to follow me on Twitter at Stormski Journal. That is also my Instagram handle, which has a slightly different vibe to it, but is still worth following. And before I let you go, a reminder to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. Trust me, it is the heart of the storm. You are going to love it. It's skiing all year long. Join us there. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.